Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special, special edition of A Vision for You Big Book Study. It's year-end. Today is Sunday, December 31st, 2017. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 29th, 2017, the 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study is 10851. That's 10,851. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study meeting, it's 10,854, 10,854. This morning, A Vision for You presents Compliance versus Surrender. Who's really in charge here? Compliance is, I'll do what you say, but I will believe as I will. Compliance is, I'll do a job because you say, but I will not completely give of myself to it. I will obey, but I will not give over my heart. I will follow dictates and check them off my list. Did I do this today? Did I do that today? I'm great. I'm good. Well done. I'm good for today in recovery. That's rather passive submission. Surrender is, I see the facts of reality and accept them as the truth, yielding completely, stepping out of ego, self-reliance, and grand fantasy. I am reconciled, therefore actively willing. I have now taken responsibility and accepted in my heart. Surrender is the foundation and ground upon which recovery is built. Recovery begins when surrender with surrender, since without it there is little possibility for change. It is a platform on which we build new, transformed, and abstinent lives. Many of us come ready with surrender in full force. For others, over time, we move from compliance to surrender. The 12 steps offer the solution to both surrender and compliance to surrender. They are designed to guide us through our ever-deepening levels of renunciation, absolute relinquishment, through which we gain a growing confidence in ourselves, in others, and in the wisdom of letting go into a profoundly more satisfying way of life. Here's a quote for you. If we are facing in the right direction, all we have to do is keep on walking. Thank God for the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Here to speak on the topic of compliance versus surrender, who's really in charge here, is Marie J. Marie J. is a recovered compulsive overeater from Colorado. You may have heard her during the daily Big Book study meetings. Her shares and her service are very visible at A Vision for You. And today she will share more deeply with us her experience, strength, and hope. Please help me welcome to the line, Marie J. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for this platform to share my experience, strength, and hope. I'm Marie J. and I am recovered in Colorado. And I pray this morning that I'll be surrendered enough in these next two hours to allow higher power to be in charge and to be able to touch someone with my words, God's words, and affect change and recovery for just one person on this line. Um, hang on, I want to set my timer because I don't want to get, get, get off track here. Okay. Um, 
I'm really grateful to the founders of this meeting. Uh, this fellowship and this work has really saved my life and given me the freedom from addiction and a totally new life. I am a totally changed person. Four and a half years ago, and I can't believe it's only four and a half years because I believe, I, I just feel like I have been in this forever. But <clears throat> I was 100 pounds overweight, and I was in so much denial that I didn't really understand that I had a food addiction. I had two sisters in um, AA, and I had been in CODA for 11 years. Um, and I sort of knew program, but I really didn't have a clue about my own addiction. I was just in a program where I did a lot of blaming and complaining about people, and I didn't work a program to change myself. And that's how deep dishonesty and denial run in me um, when I'm in charge. Uh, I know now that I'm on the other side of it and working in the big book that I've been an addict my whole life. And I started it very early. You know, I remember my eight-year-old behaviors. And my mother said, she used to say I used to have a hollow leg that had to be filled every day. That's how my eating was. And I never stopped eating. And I would go to the neighbors after breakfast and I would eat again. And when I was a teenager, I took babysitting jobs based on what they had in their pantry, how much junk food. But, and I really did that. I chose my jobs based on the food that I was going to get out of the pantry. My childhood was all about striving for perfection. I have um, six siblings that are above me and three that are below me. So I'm in a family of 10 and I'm kind of smack dab in the middle and I was always really hungry for attention. But by the time I was in high school, all of my kids, all the kids above me had had a bunch of trouble and I decided I wasn't gonna be that kid. There were parties with alcohol when my parents were out of town and drunk driving and my sister crashed her car and almost died. And my older brother was a drug addict and alcoholic. My other brother joined a religious cult. There was a teenage pregnancy and my sister. And I just decided that I was going to be the good and perfect child so that my parents would notice me. But what I got out of that was, oh, good, Marie can take care of herself. We don't need to attend to her. So I never got attention, and I just kept striving for someone to give me some attention. So then I went on to become a straight-A student all through high school and college, and I took on all kinds of extracurricular activities. I was a singer, and I was an actor, and I was always getting in shows so that I could get attention and get noticed. And I worked, I had my own money, I never did drugs that everybody else did in the 70s. My crowd was, I was the goody two-shoes. But the whole time, my self-esteem was really low and I was just striving to be perfect. And I was always in this panic to get more and to do more and to be more. I was really a high-achieving professional in my 20s. After school, I got into uh, technology companies in the 80s, and I became a very young vice president, and I was just striving and striving. And at the same time, I had this imposter syndrome. It went on for my whole career. I was 20 years in this business, continuing to grow and thrive and be successful, but I never actually believed I was competent or qualified. 
And so I spent all those years eating and drinking because I couldn't take the emotional stress of my imperfection. And I had this panicked pace, pace rather, of my, my ego just striving for more and more. What can I get? What can I get? And my ego constantly screeching at me that I wasn't good enough. And so I had this, all this conflict in my head and it was loud. And the only way to, to calm it down was with food and with sugar and especially with quantity. I was just a volume eater. I just ate and ate and ate all the time. Food was just constantly in my face and in my mouth. And I just needed more and more and more as time went on. And during my 20s, I um, dated, I dated alcoholics for that whole time, just a whole string of alcoholics. And then in my 30s, I just gave up and I just said, I'm not going to date. I'm, I just stopped dating for a whole 10 years and I cut myself off from any kind of connection or intimacy and I isolated and I just threw myself into this phony life. I was throwing lavish parties and I had superficial friendships and really no true intimacy for 10 or 15 years. I was living at, in Chicago at the time and I had been there for 20 years when I left and came out here to Colorado. And in all those 20 years, having had all those people around me and all this lavish lifestyle, I left color, uh, Chicago and I, and I only stayed in one relationship after all that time. And I was angry about that and resentful about that. And when I learned that it was me, I was the one who was cut off. I was the one who was unable to be intimate. I was the one who was phony. And I only learned that through this program. And then after that, I did three subsequent geographical moves, trying to find happiness and, you know, bouncing around in corporate America. And then I finally landed here 20 years ago. And um, I was single. I was fat. And after one year, I was unemployed. And that was a month after buying a big, expensive house. And then two years later, the tech industry crashed, and I was out of work again. So my world was really coming down, and I was falling apart. And my ego was very identified with work and prestige and image. And I had a lot of bravado. Um, but my self-esteem was really at an all-time low especially after I lost that job and, and couldn't find another one in the tech industry. And it was just, I was a mess. And so then I decided, well, okay, maybe it's time to get married. That was my next solution. And my only criteria for marriage at that time was that he not be an alcoholic. So at 45, I got married. I had never been married. He had never been married. And then two years later at 47, after mortgaging our house to pay for in vitro fertilization, I gave birth to twin boys. And the next 15 years with my husband is what I call the gift of desperation. We've been together for 15 years and my boys are 10 now. And the, the ensuing 10 years of being married and having these twins and being a 47-year-old mom was just total insanity out not being in recovery yet. So I thought getting married and having kids would fix my loneliness and 
that would create the perfection that I really wanted. I, I was really craving the perfect life. And I thought it would give me that one thing that was going to be the answer. I thought it was going to give me the attention and recognition and validation. But it turned out my husband was my husband and he was a human being and he wasn't perfect. And so then I had this goal to fix him. And um, I thought that if he would just be who I needed to be and give me the recognition and admiration that I couldn't get from my parents, then I would be happy. Of course, I didn't know all this at the time. I was just acting out. I was just crazy. And when he didn't do what I wanted him to do, he didn't go along with my plan, I raged and I punished him and I belittled him and I emasculated him. And by the time our boys were five, five years ago, they were terrified of me and we had a really big mess on our hands and I blamed him. I, he was the reason for it because he wasn't the right guy. He wasn't the living the life that I prescribed for him. He wasn't being who I needed him to be and he wasn't saving me. And it really took me a few more years to learn that the mess was me. I accused him of being emotionally unavailable when it was me all along and I, I needed and craved vulnerability and I couldn't trust. I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust him. I didn't have a God, but I made it all his fault. And the more that happened to us, the more I exerted my control. I tried to fix, manage, and control our situation. And I pushed and pushed and yelled and screamed and I ate and I drank and I pretended we were all a happy little family and I blamed and acted out. I was self-righteous. And I was really in contempt all the time, and I was scaring, scaring my children with my rage. And then five years ago, we started using the divorce word. We looked at our lives and said, we've made a giant mistake here, and we need, we need to be apart. And it was so painful, and I was not responsible for any of it. So then I figured out that I was a sugar addict by accident. I had uh, been drinking a lot and waking up with a hangover, so I stopped drinking, and that didn't seem to be a problem. But I was still waking up with bad hangovers, and they felt exactly like booze hangovers, but I had gotten booze out of my life, and I, I knew I wasn't an alcoholic, and I thought it was from the wine. And I finally figured out that it was the sugar that I was consuming. I would sit at night in front of the TV watching The Biggest Loser, and eating huge quantities of sugar. And I would sit there just dreaming of being the next contestant because that was the only way that I knew I was gonna be thin. I was gonna have it beaten and humiliated out of me. That was what I wanted. I wanted somebody to beat me and humiliate me and put me on a television show so that I could lose weight. And my recovered sister happened to be in town and suggested, OA, which I didn't even know about. I had been in, you know, Al-Anon and Coda and things like that, but I didn't really know about Overeaters Anonymous. And I, it was such a humiliating name, Overeaters Anonymous. I couldn't say that I was an overeater, um, a compulsive overeater for a very long time. And that was four and a half years ago. And it feels like a lifetime because I am so changed now. So 
what I realize now, though, on the other side of it is what happened for my first couple of years in program in the rooms was diet with group support and a whole lot of compliance. And I will say that I totally buy into the slogan, nothing happens in God's world by mistake or at the wrong time, because life unfolded exactly as it was intended and exactly at the right time. And I used to be a little upset that, wow, I didn't get this sooner. You know, it took three years to kind of get to recovery. And it was exactly the right process, the right path. On day one, I got a sponsor, and she wasn't from our local group. She was a guest speaker that day, and she was a big book thumper. And she told me about the book, and we got on the phone once a week for 30 minutes and um, read the book. And I quit after a few weeks because I wasn't ready. I just didn't get it. And I, I thought this sponsoring thing on the phone was really weird and, and it was ridiculous and I didn't think it was going to work. And after reading the big book for 30 minutes, I was like, how does this apply to me? I had no idea what, what, is, what it was about. I had just come into the program to get skinny and to lose the weight. And <clears throat> I was really ready to do whatever it took to get the outcome that I wanted. I wanted what I wanted. I didn't have any clue about surrender. And I knew what was needed and I was going to get it. I had an agenda and I was in total self-will and self-reliance. I was going to make it happen. So I fired that sponsor. And the funny thing about it now is, you know, one of my favorite um, lines in the big book is on page 14. And I quote it all the time, you know, where it says, Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. And it, it's one of my favorite lines of the book, and it's one that I have to attend to every day because my self-centeredness is so powerful and it's so strong and my ego is so big. And it took the first three years of program to really begin to scratch the surface of the meaning of true surrender. And the humility that it takes to release my need to be right in all things. And I, I was never humble. I was always self-righteous. I was always superior. And today, the irony of it is that here I am. I am a big book something sponsor on the phone. And I have sponsees that I've never met, never seen. And I'm loving it. And it works. This book works. But I wasn't ready in the beginning. I had the opportunity on day one, and I wasn't ready, and that's okay. I had to go through what I went through to get where I am today. So the thing I want to talk about today is compliance versus surrender, because I think those first three years of my recovery were filled with compliance, and I didn't, I didn't have a clue about surrender. And, you know, maybe I still don't. More will be revealed what I've learned is I usually don't know what I didn't know until I'm way on the other side of it, and then I see how clueless I was. And, you know, that's probably the way it has to be, so I'm good with that. I've heard this slogan recently that life can only be lived forward and understood backward. And I love that because I can look back now and understand the process that I've gone through and the process of recovery and all the things that had to happen, including my relapses. And my gratitude around that is, is just really powerful because 
I can look back and see how necessary those things were to get me to where I am today, to being able to carry this message and to carry a message of hope. And without the things that I went through and the struggles, I wouldn't have the story I have to tell today. So I'm really grateful. So I started studying the work of Harry Tebow, and he was a psychiatrist, and he was among the pioneers in the psychiatric field studying alcoholism alongside Dr. Silkworth and Bill Wilson. And in the 50s, he wrote these scientific papers. And I only discovered them a little over a year ago. And there's um, one in particular that, that is on this topic of compliance versus surrender. And in studying this work, I realized that it has altered my entire approach to my recovery in just the last year or so. And as a result, my capacity to be able to surrender my will in my life to the care of higher power has been really explosive. And my recovery has really accelerated and taken me to new places. So, hang on. Dr. Thibault talked about compliance, and he defines it as, and I quote, agreeing or going along with, but in no way implies enthusiastic, wholehearted assent and approval or approval. There is a willingness not to argue or to resist, but cooperation is a bit grudging and a little forced, and one is not entirely happy about agreeing. And that's, end quote. Um, this is what so many of us do when we come into recovery. We do what others have done to get what others have gotten. And they tell us what to do. And if you're anything like me, you did it with some reluctance and some reservation and doubt in the early years. I was doubtful. I was reluctant. But I saw people sitting in chairs who were skinny and I wanted what they had. And that's what I did. I said, okay, tell me what to do. And I'll do it. And when I didn't feel it, whatever it was supposed to be, I was told to fake it until I made it. You know, fake it till you make it. Just keep doing the deal. And the other things people told me are to take what you want and leave the rest. And so what I took from that, and this was my interpretation, is, okay, I get permission to be in program and still be in charge. I get to decide which parts I'm going to comply with, and I get to decide what my abstinence will be and what God was and what God wasn't. I got to define God so that I would be comfortable. And so sometimes grudgingly and reluctantly, I go along with the rules and work the tools in the hope that I'm going to get out of the food and stop doing whatever it is I'm doing to myself so that I can get some relief. And in my early recovery, I used to just say, you know, give me the rules. Tell me what to do and I will do it. And I willingly complied, but I didn't enjoy the process. I wasn't enthusiastic. I didn't want to do my fourth step. I didn't want to have a fearless and I didn't want to be fearless and do an inventory. I didn't want to look at myself. I didn't want to be humbled. And I grudgingly did some, but not all of my ninth step because I was 
always of the mindset mindset that if I don't do this, I won't get recovery and I won't get skinny. So I just went along with it because I had an agenda and I complied. And I did so with resistance and reluctance. And when it came time for me to sponsor, you know, I got to my 10th step, not even having finished my ninth step. I didn't want to sponsor. I resented having to sponsor. And I resented my sponsees. And I wanted to control and fix them. And I wanted them to listen to me and behave. And I just was still in this external controlling mode, still in my head, still complying and doing things that I was told to do or I wouldn't get to have recovery. And I wasn't happy, joyous, and free. I was just getting by. And that's what I call the definition of diet with group support, just getting by. And maybe that's what I needed to go through in order to get where I am today. I just believe that nothing happens by mistake. I don't have any remorse about my path. It's just information that keeps helping me to continue to peel back the next layer and continue to look deeper at these issues as they come to the forefront. So then what happened in those uh, first few years is I did get the weight loss. I lost 90 pounds and I attended six meetings a week and I was kind of a poster child of our local group for a while. And it seemed if I was, it seemed as if I was incredibly recovered and fully engaged and really surrendered because it showed on the outside. I showed in my body and I went to meetings and I was visible and I was present and I talked the talk, but I didn't feel any serenity. Certainly not, not like I do now, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And then out of the blue, I relapsed because I was in compliance, because I was in charge. And when I'm in charge, I will relapse. Compliance puts me in charge. And I was just doing the deal. I was managing it. I was in my head. And when I'm in my head, I'm in charge and I'm powerless over food. So I'm going to relapse. So what Dr. Tebow had to say is that compliance fools us into thinking we are surrendered but compliance itself leaves us in charge. We are in the driver's seat. Compliance is only half-hearted. It's only partial surrender. And so I thought I was surrendered. I was fooled. I was fooled into thinking that I was surrendered when in fact I was reluctant. I was resistant and I was never out of my head. Surrender lives in the heart and it has to be wholehearted. And compliance lives in the head. And if I want true recovery, I have to get from my head to my heart. I spent the first three years of recovery practicing compliance and staying in my head and never being able to get into my heart. And why did I do that? Why did I stay stuck in compliance if surrender is going to get me recovery? because compliance feels like surrender, because I'm fooled about it, but it allows me to stay in charge. If compliance lives in my head, that's where my disease and my ego are. And when I'm in my head, I'm in charge. And so I'm gonna follow the rules that I'm picking and choosing, and I'm gonna call that surrender, and then I get the best of both worlds. I get to be fooled into thinking I'm surrendered while I'm still in charge. 
You know, I get what we all want. I get my cake and I get to eat it too. And so all that went on for a few years. I believed I was surrendered and so did everybody else. And it was just okay. I just thought, okay, this is recovery. I didn't really have the promises and I didn't really understand what people were talking about. I just wanted to believe the people on the phones who were spouting off incredible spiritual awakenings, but I just didn't know how to get there. And so I thought, okay, this is how it is. This is how my recovery is going to be. I'm just going to be one of those people that just, it's just okay. And it's not going to be full of this incredible spiritual awakenings that these other people are, are having. And I'm not trying to make myself wrong here. I'm not trying to say that I took the wrong path. You know, I needed that path at that time. And it's exactly what it was supposed to be. Or I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today on the other side of it with a a whole different story. And during it, I was in some ignorance and blissful ignorance at that. Because I didn't know how good it could be at the time. And it seemed like it was just good enough. But being on the other side and now looking back, I can see how I fooled myself into believing that I was surrendered right up until I relapsed. And after my relapse, I went back and I started the steps over with my sponsor and we were searching for what was missing from the first time I went through. And I realized when I got to the second step, oh my gosh, it was just the second step where I realized that My constructed image of God was limited by my own human limitations. My human mind is limited. And I was still looking to explain and understand God. I was still stuck in my head about who God was. And I wouldn't let go until I had a description of God that satisfied my ego. So I couldn't get out of my head. And Dr. Thibault talks about submission versus surrender. And submission is conscious acceptance of reality, but it's never unconscious. So it never gets from our head to our heart. So there's a thought now that, okay, I can accept this situation now in the moment. I can accept this consciously, but eventually things will change and I'll get my way. So I submit and I accept in this moment, but it's superficial. It's just a superficial yielding. It's giving in. And saying, okay, I'm going to accept this consciously, but there's still an internal struggle. There's still intention inside of me around it. And there's not full acceptance. So surrender, on the other hand, is unconscious. This is acceptance, not in my head, but in my heart. And it's on an unconscious level. And when I accept on this level, there's no internal battle. There's no struggle. There's no internal tension. There's only peace and serenity and relaxation. And my level of peace and serenity and relaxation is in direct correlation to the level of surrender surrender that I'm able to achieve. I can't force it. I can't make surrender happen. No act of my will can create surrender. Because will, my will is in my head and surrender is in my heart. So I can't will surrender. I just have to allow it. I have to allow it to rise up. And so Dr. Thibault says that relapse happens because people can admit they're powerless, but they can't accept their powerlessness 
and surrender and acceptance are tied together. And they have to both be experienced at an unconscious level before we can recover. So that's why relapse happens. We might be able to admit, but we can't surrender and accept that we are powerless. We admit we we're powerless, but we have to accept the powerlessness at an unconscious level to be able to move forward. So then I say, okay, how does surrender happen? How do I get from my head to my heart? And so for starters, I have to listen and I have to let go of what I think I know. I have to let go of what I think I need to know in order to work the steps. I have to work the steps and I have to get my thoughts about what I know and what I think I need in order to be able to work these steps. And I have to start with acceptance of my powerlessness in step one. You know, step one informs me that I will always go back to the food because I'm powerless. That's what it tells me. I am powerless and I'm always going to go back to food. So if I admit and accept my powerlessness and I don't move on to step two and I don't get step two, then I am guaranteed to eat again. So I need to move on to step two and have a belief in a power greater than myself. And while this book tells us to go ahead and pick something we can believe in, it was not enough for me to stay in my head with a new definition of higher power that I felt good about. I had to have the experience of higher power, and that's what was missing. Higher power was a construct of my mind. And I spent a lot of time trying to know and understand and explain what God was and what God wasn't until I started realizing that I needed the experience of God. And then I was able to stop and just invite it in for me to experience it and to not have to understand or define it. And that was hard because my ego and my disease fight that. My ego does not want me to know God in my heart because that will be the destruction of self-centeredness and that will cause recovery. And my ego does not want to be destroyed. And my ego does not want me to be recovered. And my ego knows that if God is in my heart, I am surrendered and my ego is quiet and I'm living from my heart. So every time I sit down to meditate, I have this battle going on in my head telling me I don't have time and that it's not important and that I can do it later. And that's my ego. And what I know is if I don't sit quietly and invite this power into my heart and into my experience every day and all day long, all throughout my day, then I will stay in my head doing the motions of the tools and doing the motions of the steps. And it will all be half-hearted and I won't ever experience true freedom. And I'll always be in danger of relapse. Relapse is just right around the corner, knocking on the door, just wanting to get in. And if I'm in compliance and being half-hearted and working these steps and going through the motions and not truly experiencing surrender with higher power, I'm in danger of relapse at any second. And in true surrender, <clears throat> I control nothing. I choose nothing except 
to surrender to the will of God, a God I can't define or understand because it's greater than me, and therefore it's undefinable by me. All I need to know is a power greater than me exists, and I happen to call it God. It doesn't have to be called God. It can be called anything. Many people use the group, the nature, nature, and the sky, the stars. It doesn't matter. I call it God, and all I know is it's not me. There is a God. It's not me, and once I begin saying what God is and what God isn't, then my ego takes over and starts playing God. So the book says pick a God of your understanding, but then get it from your head to your heart and ask God to constantly reveal more to you, to reveal God to you, to reveal truth, and to allow me not to define God, but to experience God. And then when I'm in total surrender, I'm free and I'm calm and I'm joyful in the tension that I experienced in compliance is now lifted into true surrender. And this still feels pretty new to me. I mean, I've been working on this for the last year or more. And this surrender piece is, is something I have to do every day. I've been complying a long time. And compliance is full of struggle and it lacks freedom. And this is the first time I felt this true freedom of surrender. And when I used to think I was so surrendered, I would start checking in on myself only to see that, gosh, I'm constantly taking my will back. I see it all day long. And I have to remind myself or be reminded through sponsorship or somebody that I'm doing a 10-step call with to get out of the driver's seat. And it's human nature, and that's why we have the 10th step. To be, it's just part of being human. And once I can separate my true self from the voice that narrates my life, then I can be taught to hear the truth and to be able to surrender the power. But the narrator that is constantly chattering in my head has to be quieted. And I get very attached to the narrator's story. And that's all ego and all self-will. And the other thing about real surrender is that it goes hand in hand with acceptance. If I'm truly surrendered, then I have faith that everything that is happening in this moment is exactly as it's meant to be. And for reasons that I don't have to know and I don't have to explain. And that's the hard part because it's none of my business and I'm not in charge. And I might not know what's going on and I might not have an explanation, but I have faith that it's all happening exactly as it's supposed to happen. And if I'm not in charge, it's so much easier to stay present. It's so much easier to be in acceptance when I am constantly saying, It's none of my business and I'm not in charge. Then I'm surrendered and I'm listening to the will of my higher power and taking direction and guidance based on that and coming from my heart. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about my relapse um, because people, you know, people want to know how, how do you do this? And what happened was I, people stopped noticing me and admiring me for all my weight loss. And I just became one of the the team. You know, I had lost the weight three years ago. A lot of people were already long gone and, and didn't even know. And I became a bozo on the bus. You know, I'm just one of the crowd now. 
but I was still craving the attention and recognition and my ego still needed to be fed because I was still in my head. I wasn't surrendered. And I was looking to fill my holes from you, not from God. So I wasn't prepared when I got to step nine because I really had never gotten past steps two and three. God wasn't big enough and I didn't surrender and I relapsed. And we hear all the time about the shame of relapse. And I had a few days of shame until I realized what a gift this relapse was. And then I was able to look at it as, okay, it's, it's that simple. It's just information. If I hadn't relapsed and gone back to do the additional work in steps two and three, I would never have had the recovery that I have today and the true freedom. And more will be revealed. What I know now is that there's more coming. And I am so blown away by what I've gotten so far that I can't even imagine what is coming, what's ahead for me. Because I still feel like a real neophyte here. So I needed to go back and find out what was missing from my first time through the steps. And when I did, I was able to experience the spiritual transformation because I fully began to experience surrender. And I can fully be in this experience of the limitless power that I don't have to try to explain anymore and I don't have to understand in my head. And what I can tell you is that everything in my life changed when I started to understand in my head and experience in my heart surrender versus compliance. So when I started to understand that I was in compliance and then I could start to experience surrender in my heart, it just wasn't about my food becoming neutral or my weight becoming normal. It's infiltrated the rest of my life. It's in my marriage. It's with my children. It's in my business. You know, I had, I, um, I think I had said earlier that I had struggles around financial insecurity for my whole life. And I'm self-employed, and it's exacerbated because I never know where my income is coming from or how much it will be. And when we had children, we decided that I would become the provider of our financial uh, work and money, and my husband would be a stay-at-home dad, and I had to get over a lot of resentment about not being able to be at home with my kids and having to go out and be the breadwinner. And I was angry for a while, and I blamed my husband, and I had to constantly give it to God and work on that. And I had to trust that whatever what's happening is what is. And I had to get to acceptance. And when I started doing this work last year, I had the best financial year of my career. And this year I had the second best financial year of my career. And, and I like, why am I always surprised when you know God comes through for me? I attribute this entirely to surrender and not being in charge. I gave this to God. I surrendered and let go of all of this around my work. And God came through and my marriage is healed. And my husband has found my recovery so attractive that he's starting to talk program language just from hearing me walk around the house talking to sponsees and other fellows. And he makes amends to me. I mean, this is just a miracle. 
I let go of needing to fix, manage, and control everything outside of me, and I surrender to higher power at a very deep level in my heart, and everything is changing around me. But what I really know is that I've changed. My perspective has changed. My perceptions have changed. And maybe nothing around me has changed, and only I have changed. I don't know what the answer is there, but what I have learned is that it's always been me. The problem had always been me. And I have been changed through surrendering to a limitless power that is greater than myself. And what I know today is I'm not in control of anything except my thoughts. What is in my head, my thoughts drive my actions. So I have to watch my thoughts constantly and surrender my thoughts constantly. So my job is to take action to train my mind to live by the will of God and to have my thoughts reprogrammed. And it's not always easy. And I always, and I don't always want to surrender all of my thoughts. The wholehearted acceptance of what is, <clears throat> acceptance of the truth, <clears throat> excuse me, and acceptance of my lack of power and my lack of control of anything outside my thoughts. This is what leads to true surrender. When I accept what is, what is, when I accept that fully and completely, only then am I able to surrender. And how do I get there? I do a lot of meditation. Meditation is so key for me in this process, process of moving from my head to my heart. I've been trying to meditate all my life. It's just something I've always wanted to do, but I am, I, my mind is so busy, so busy, and it's always been such a chore. My head is so loud, and the idea of quieting my thoughts to be able to still myself and to meditate just seemed completely impossible. It was a whole lot of work, and I went to classes. And I, I just would try this and try that. And I'd talk to people and I'd go to workshops and I just couldn't meditate. And I, I knew that I, I needed to have this. And so I initially, I would just sit for 12 minutes. It seemed like that was all I could do. And it about killed me. It was so noisy. And I just chose to use a mantra to help quiet my mind. So I used the word allow. And I would sit and just say, I allow the experience of God to be in me right now. And the thoughts would come up and my mind would wander. And then I would just allow that also, you know, not resist anything. And I would just replace those thoughts and all that busyness with, I allow the experience of God right now. And I would invite my thoughts to gently just move along and keep repeating my mantra and to just stay in this quiet, non-resistant place and ask God to come in and allow me an experience. And I never tried to resist. I just let the thoughts go. I wouldn't push thoughts out or force my will or try to conform to some idea of what meditation was because that just keeps me all in my head. So I would just continue to focus on my heart and focus on this <clears throat> allowing allowing whatever experience was supposed to be there and gently letting my thoughts come and go without any resistance. And I did this over and over, twice a day. 
And then I increased my meditation um, to 20 minutes in this year. And it would feel like a lot of craziness because thoughts would just keep coming up and I would continue to not resist. And after a time, I would get to the last three or four minutes and I would experience peace and calm. And I would just keep practicing that over and over and it would get more and more. And it still comes and goes. My meditations aren't always perfect. In fact, they're never perfect. But, but I get moments of clarity and deep surrender and deep peacefulness. But I have to practice it. It's like building a muscle. And it's no different than exercise. Um, I recently became a runner. And I, I have to get out and run every couple of days in order to be a runner. And when I stop practicing that, then I'm no longer a runner. And it's the same with surrender and meditation. I have to practice submitting and surrendering every day and all day long, and I have to do the meditation. Because when I stop and I rest on my laurels and think I've got this, then I go back to half-heartedness. And I go back into my head. And I become the driver again. I have to develop the capacity to surrender and to accept life as it's given to me. And by practicing surrender daily through meditation, I get to continue to feel the will of God running my life. So another thing that Harry Tebow says is that compliance blocks the capacity to surrender because it's ego-based and it's self-involved. So if we're in compliance and following the rules, we cannot surrender. We are blocked. And it's not until I wholeheartedly accept and work the steps that I can get to true surrender. And wholeheartedness is about gratefully accepting everything as a gift. So when my husband is behaving in a way that I find unacceptable, I have to change my mind. You know, I go to self-pity and how he's not doing what I want him to do to make my life easier or to do what I, to what, do what I need him to do, to be who I want him to be. And I have to shift that thinking. I have to become grateful for the opportunity to be changed because it's I who need to be changed. I need a change in my perspective. And then I have to wholeheartedly be willing to change and see my husband as God sees him. Or when I lose a deal that I'm working on, you know, I'm self-employed. Every minute that I spend working on a deal needs to turn into income. And when I lose a deal, I can get pretty upset. And I need to be able to shift my thinking and say, thank you, God, for that experience and that opportunity to see that you, not I, are in charge. You're in charge of my income and my safety. And help me not only to accept, but to be joyful in whatever lesson of change you've brought me, whether I understand it now in this moment or not. Help me to see beyond my selfish needs and trust that you have my back. That's surrender. So what I've learned is that compliance is really sneaky, and it fools me into believing that I'm surrendered. But compliance is only partial surrender. It's only half-hearted. And the compliance, I've learned it's, it's conscious. It's on the surface. It's, super, it's superficial. And surrender is unconscious. 
and an act of my will will not achieve surrender. The path from this conscious compliance to unconscious surrender is the path from my head to my heart. My disease operates in my head and in my ego, and higher power operates from my heart. The wholehearted surrender at an unconscious level is how recovery sticks, and it's how recovery is sustained. And it's why now I have been recovered and sustained in recovery and have not had any relapse or any, even any challenges with food. I'm so free from, from food. And what excites me about this today is my spiritual life continues to expand in ways that I never even imagined in the beginning. And it blows me away because it's not about the food. I'm a serious compulsive overeater, and it was hard for three years to be in a diet with group support and thinking all the time, is this all there is to recovery for me? Is this all I'm going to get? And all along the course, I have been delighted and excited to discover new ways of being. And it says in the book that we get a daily reprieve that's contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And every day I work this program with my hair on fire. The shift to surrender has brought the activity of a sponsorship into such a different frame of reference for me. I know today that sponsorship is, is, is privilege, and it's something that I look forward to <clears throat> because I get so much out of carrying this message, and I learn so much about my own need to be changed when I'm working with others, because when I'm working with others, I can go into judgment and criticism, and I have to constantly ask God to step in and show me how to be useful and show me how to give somebody what they need to, to hear. And the gift of having sponsees is a miracle in my life, and it's a joy in my day when I get to work with others, when I get to carry the message. And it's a flat-out miracle. If I could do this full-time, I would. If I could be on the phone every hour of my day that I'm awake carrying this message, I would do this because it is so fulfilling. It lifts me up and it keeps me covered. And so the question I ask myself many times during this day every day, who's really in charge? And so many times I see myself taking the reins. But I'm able to surrender happily and joyfully. And when I do, I have all the time I need to do. I have all the time I need to get whatever I need to get done because I'm no longer wasting precious hours worrying about the things I can't control. And I turn them over and I ask for the next right action. And when I'm quiet, I get the, action, the answers I need and the action that I need to take. But I have to keep the practice up. I have to exercise the muscles of trust and surrender. I can't just do it when calamity arises because the foundation won't be there. On page 53, it says either God is everything or God is nothing. God is either is or isn't. And what is our choice to be? Perhaps we have been leaning on reason that last mile and we did not like to lose our support. The support is ego. The reason is ego. And it's false, and it's false pride and false support. And I'm going to tumble like a house of cards if I'm not centered and grounded in ego, 
If I'm in self-reliance, I'm leaning on self and I can't get the support I need. So who am I to say there is or isn't a God? This journey and this instruction tells me I must find a higher power, a power greater than myself, or I am doomed to live the life I lived. Obese, hardly able to walk up a flight of stairs, never without pain and in a terrible marriage and terrified children. And today, today I'm running 25 minutes every other day. I'm happy. I'm pain-free. And I'm joyful to be doing it at 5 a.m. in the morning. What? Are you kidding me? I get out of bed. I go for a run. I'm joyful. I'm up at 5.30. I'm on the calls. It's a wholesale miracle. I hated exercise before this program. And now look at me. I'm loving running. And this is only one small example of the many miracles every day in my life. And I said lately, if I'm a runner, there's a God. There it is. That's enough. That's enough for me. God coming through. So which life do I want? Me in charge, fat, raging, divorced with children who will eventually hate me because of the person that I am in their lives? Or do I want God in charge, happily married, the narrator in my head, quiet, children who throw themselves into my arms every day, who are blessed and blessing me and me fit and healthy. All I have to do is find God. Why wouldn't I do that? And I did that. And that was the turning point. I found the power and I asked it every day and I ask it every day to be in charge and run my life and show me that the way and I practice every day and I stay in conscious contact with this power because I'm a weak human being who will always run back to my ego. This didn't happen overnight and I continue to have good days and bad days of practicing the surrender. I'm human and I can rest on my laurels and I can get stuck. I'm faced with my disease every day, waking up strong and wanting to be in charge. And I roll over first thing in the morning and I take steps one, two, and three before I get out of bed. And I ask God to protect me from myself, my self-centeredness, my self-righteousness, my selfishness. I ask God to direct my day, to help me to be useful and to do God's work and to carry the message. And most of all, I just ask to show up in kindness and tolerance. And if I'm surrendered 25% of the time, that's great progress because I'm human and I know that perfection is a character liability and I'm never going to be perfect at this. And I'm grateful for every moment that I'm giving it to God. And I'm not critical of myself when I'm not. So today I'm changed to depth and I'm, I'm in this book every day trying my best to surrender to God's guidance and to give hope to someone who's struggling. And if you told me four and a half years ago that this would be my life today, I would never have believed you. I am a completely different person. And the weight loss goal that I had when I came in was the least of the gifts that I've been given. This program operates in all of my life, and I have all of the problems, or the promises. I have all of the promises. I have them all one day at a time. And it's not like I don't have struggles, but I'm not afraid of my struggles. I don't fall apart. And with this, I have the steps and I work the steps and I surrender and I have the tools that work and I always know that I'm safe and protected. So I'm so grateful for this time to share my experience and I will just close with a question that I ask all day long. Who's really in charge here? And pray that I can stay surrendered. Thank you, I pass.
Thank you, Marie J. Thank you very much. Wow. What a beautiful story of hope and promise and a wonderful start to the last day of a banner year. At least it was in my household. It sounds like it was for you too as well, Marie. Thank you so much. We will be beginning the um we'll be beginning the segment of question and answer here. Are you ready for it, Marie? Yes, indeed. Well, as much <laughs> as I can be, I'm surrender <laughs> to it. Yes, there you go. There you go. So it, does anyone have a question for Marie J. today? I'm ready to take some names. Mary Lee R. and Eugene Oregon. Okay, Mary Lee. Ginger Martha C. S. Ginger C. AJN. Martha S. AJ, did, is that what you said? N? Yes. AJN? Yes. Okay. Anyone else? Deborah Tara. 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 Hi, Tara. Mm -hmm. Stacy K. Stacy K. That sounds like a good group. Let's go with that, and we'll go, and we'll go another round. I'll bet you after that. So I've got Mary Lee, Ginger, Martha, AJ, Deborah, Tara, and Stacy. Everyone except for Marie and Mary Lee, would you please mute for right now? Even your star one, please. And good morning, Mary Lee. Your question for Mar for Marie J. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you so much for your introduction. And um, this is Mary Lee in Eugene, Oregon, in recovery for today. And Marie, uh, <laughs> the acronym for HOPE is HAPPY Our Program Exists. And you, um, well, anyway, my question. Do you have doubts about... Um, higher power, and I mean, if you do and when you do, what what are some of the things you do that put you back in the fold? Thank you. Thanks, Mary Lee. Um, that is a, that's a good question. I had doubts all along the way, and um, I think it's just about exercising that muscle. I think it's about carrying the message and what I do is I get on the phone and I sponsor my doubts go away when I can tell my story of recovery to someone who is stuck and someone who is in the food and someone who is brand new in program so being able to I think sharing on the lines is really important because I have to be reminded I have an incredibly short memory I have to be reminded to um, to iterate my recovery process because I forget I forget where I was I I had a terrible relationship with God I had a punishing uh, uh, male hierarchy male dominated God who who was always going to punish me I was always going to be in trouble so I had to get from that to where I am today and it was a long road and so I really believe that just being vocalizing my process and constantly being able to reiterate where I was and where I am now. And yes, I do have doubts sometimes, but when we're doubtful, we pause, you know, we pause and we ask for direction. And, and when I'm doubtful, it means that I haven't sat in meditation. I have not connected because when I, practice and practice and stay in the process of meditation, I get connected, I get reconnected. Thanks. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lee. Ginger C., you're next. Hi. Good morning, Melanie. Thanks so much for your service. And wow, Marie J., beautiful, amazing share. Just heard so much higher power come through you. And, um, you know, every one of us on the line, we know that we lack power. That's our dilemma and that we need a power uh, to prevent us from relapsing. And we have to trust, you know, try really using step two. And I heard that so clearly through your share that you're really letting go of the wheel and you're letting God. So I just wanted to see if you would be willing this morning to share one of your first experiences, like you mentioned, that head to heart, the the true experience of God in your life. Thank you, Ginger. I I have so many experiences. I used to carry a little book around with me because in the beginning, I didn't look at things and say, oh, this is an experience of God. But I, I always hear you, Ginger, say, is it odd or is it God? And I would carry a book around and and every time something went, every time I went, oh, wow, what, this is awesome. You know, I would say, oh, is this odd or is this God? And I'd jot it down. And so really little tiny things all along uh, my path have been experiences of God. I just wasn't paying attention. And when I start paying attention, there's so many little things through my life. And I guess the real miracle is um, one of the one of the big miracles of God is you know my kids are really afraid of my rage, and when I it, it took a while, but through this work and through being able to do amends to my children and being able to show up in a different way and to surrender my uh, control and rage around my my husband and my family, my kids have just become like this, the miracle of my children is just really magical. And I watch my kids at 10 kind of doing program and my husband doing program just because they hear me in the conversation and because we have these conversations and because I'm able to just amend my behavior when I fly off the handle and it rarely happens anymore. So things like that and how this is is so much no longer about the food in my life and so much about how this goes into every area of my life. And so that's one of the, the big miracles that's, that's happened in this experience of God. Thanks. Thanks, Ginger C. Martha S., you're next. And then AJ will come after you. Hi, this is Martha S., grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in upstate New York. Thank you, Marie, so much. I was very moved and learned a lot. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your morning meditation part where we think about our plans for the day and ask uh, for guidance and inspiration or an intuitive thought or decision if we're not sure what course to take. So, um, like, what does that look like? For for you, uh, for that those specific instructions, if um, that would be helpful to me. Thank you. Thanks, Martha. Um, my um, morning meditation <clears throat> is different from asking 
uh, for guidance about my plans for the day. So they are two separate activities for me. My morning meditation is entirely about connection. So um, when I get up in the morning first, I, I roll over and I do steps one, two, and three. And I just ask God to be in charge of my day and, and uh, you know, surrender my, surrender my self-centeredness, my selfishness, my self-reliance, and all, all things of self, and ask to, help, to have help with being surrendered, and ask to be able to hear the guidance that I'm to hear. And I am a very organized and detailed person. And starting at 5 a.m., my day is all organized every half an hour, and I have a list of what I'm going to do for the whole day. And all throughout the day, first I, I look at my agenda and I say, God, here's my agenda for today, and I'm willing for any of this to change, for you to be involved. So even though I have these appointments, things may change. And sometimes things change, and rather than, you know, somebody missed an appointment with me or something happened, rather than going into all this calamity, I say, oh, okay, okay, not my agenda today. Okay, I get it. Thank you, God. I see that. I'm listening for that guidance. But I do that up front in the morning and just say, here's my agenda, and I'm willing to be in your agenda today. So help me listen for that guidance. And then the meditation piece is connecting. It's connecting in my heart and just being present and experiencing and being with God and feeling God in my heart, feeling God in my body. So two separate activities, and I do them both. Thanks. Thank you, Martha S. AJN, you're next. Uh, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, this is AJN um, from Ohio, and <clears throat> I did not get to hear your much of your share. I just, I just tapped in right when you were talking about how financial insecurity has been a problem with you for a long time, and it's, it's just like, is it odd or is it God? Because I've been thinking about putting a question out there on the one of the meetings in the second hour to see if I could get some calls from people who struggle with financial insecurity. It's just <clears throat> been really tough for me, and I have my own business, and I just made the decision to sell it. And um, <clears throat> so now I'm even more scared of financial insecurity. What am I going to do? Anyways, my question is, you know, I've been in program Envision for you for about five years. Um, as far as food recovery, it's been really, really good but I still still struggle with these fears, these debilitating fears. And just recently, it got so, so scary <laughs> that the food became a step up. And um, I relapsed for a few days. I'm back on track now. But my question is, <clears throat> for somebody like me, do you think I need to go through the steps again? Or where do I pick up from here? Thanks, AJ. Um, <laughs> I am in the steps all the time. And... Um, and I might not be following them um, from start to finish, but I do believe that when we relapse, going back to start over the steps is really key. And, and because I think we're looking for what was missing. Where, where did I fall short in working the steps? And after my first relapse, and I had two relapses, um, after my first relapse, I realized that um, – my first relapse was about step nine. I just didn't finish step nine. My second relapse was 
I never really got past step two. And if I don't get past step two, how can I effectively work the rest of the program? If I don't have the belief and the trust in higher power and then the ability and capacity to surrender, how can I do an inventory and how can I do, how, how can I share this inventory with someone and how can I claim and own my character defects and surrender, surrender them humbly? How can I be of service? How can I make amends? I can't really effectively do those until I am fully fully immersed in that second and third step. So for me, that's what I had to do, go back to the beginning and get through the steps again, one after another to find what was missing. And for me, that was miraculous. That just was an explosion. And then the next thing that happened was this beautiful information on compliance and surrender came to me. So it just keeps building on itself. So yes, I am a big believer in going back after relapse and, um, and getting through the steps, find what you missed. Thank and working you. with a sponsor? I, oh, I yes. I, okay. I, that's, what, that's what I did. That's, okay. what, that's where I had success. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, AJ. Deborah M., you're next. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Good morning. Your question for Marie. Yeah, my name is Deborah. Um, I've been asking for about a year from Western New York. And I just want to um, thank you so much for your, your share. Just one, uh, uh, two thoughts that I have by you to see if it's what you're talking about. It's an amazing talk that you're sharing this morning. And then more comments from you on, you spoke about experiencing God once you accepted surrender. Um, a few days ago, I realized that um, my family is totally broke. I'm not going into details, but kids are in foster care and, and all of that. And for the first time, I had to acknowledge what broke means because I believe that if I worked the program and I was compliant, I didn't even understand the word, but if I did the right thing, there would be it would be fixed. I would be fixed. The family would be fixed. It's kind of unconscious. And so there's that ego going on. But the surrender part, if I surrender, that means possibly my God will not heal and will not do the, what I hope he would do. Therefore, I think subconsciously I was trying to move in compliance. And once I accept totally that there's a brokenness, I feel very vulnerable um, and I think that's what you're talking about. And then could you comment on what you meant once you understood surrender and that it was experiencing God that brought you through? Thank you. Uh, okay. Thank you, Deborah. I, I hope I understand your question. Um, <clears throat> um, experiencing surrender and um, accepting surrender. And I guess what what I would say is that life is always going to show up. Calamity is going to show up because life is not easy. Life has a bunch of junk in it that 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 is problematic for all of us and we all have different issues and different problems, but life is going to show up. And if I have a foundation in God, then the recovery is how I handle life 
how I handle the calamity that comes up because it's going to come up and I can either react by falling apart and going into the food and, and not being able to support whatever my family needs or I can have a foundation of support from God. And either way, life is going to show up and the same things are going to happen. So it's my reaction and my response that, that define my recovery. So am I going to go down this path of I'm going to act out in my non-recovered behaviors or am I going to act out in my recovered behaviors? And either one is fine. It's just information. It's just a choice. But where do I want to be? And so the, the compliance piece is if I'm doing like I was like you, I, I did what I was told to do to get something I wanted to get. And if I did this, I was going to get that. And today in a surrendered life, I meditate and I ask God to, to come inside of me, to be in my body, to be in my heart and to direct my life. And I do that every day. So God, direct my life today. And I do that multiple times a day. Sometimes I find myself in my self-will and I have to run over to the bathroom and shut the door and sit down for five minutes and, and focus on, okay, God, I see I've grabbed my will back and I'm, and I'm reacting and I'm trying to control and help me to be surrendered. Help me to feel you in my heart. Give me the guidance that I need to be able to change my perception, to be able to be changed at depth, to be able to see this situation as a gift, not as a calamity. And when I do that and practice that regularly, I have this foundation so that it becomes easier and easier. You know, in the book, big book, it says it, it comes as if, you know, as if it's always been there. It comes easily. It comes as second nature. And for me, it's first nature. It's always first nature now because I practice it. I practice it when things are going well and when I'm happy and when things are good. And so I practice it and practice it so when calamity comes up and life shows up, I still have it. I have that foundation in God. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Tara Kay, you're next with the question. Okay, thank you so much. I'm uh, just just really really grateful to to be here today to, you know, have just turned on turned on the meeting and um heard what I heard. I uh I'm, I I love what you've said and I want to be more effective in passing on the way of of life that you're describing to um, my sponsees, proteges, um, especially the part that, well, all of it, but um, how to find that it's the problem is self-centeredness, selfishness, self, you know, just all about. Uh, me and my body, my my weight, my looks, and, you know, my experience and all that, as opposed to, um, it, you know, and it's all about the food and it's all about eating, um, which, you know, that is our common problem. And I don't want to 
um, make that smaller, but rather than being that it, you know, it's more about letting, you know, letting God in, um, a higher power. I think it's hard to, to formulate this question, but just to help protégés to be able to look at themselves um, in a in a way that is more, you know, meaningful to them. Does that give you anything to work with? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think it does. Um, and, I, and I totally, I'm sorry, what was your name? I missed your name. Tara. Tara, um, thanks for the question. I, I think it's a great one because um, what I know about myself when I was um, a more green, unrecovered Fonsie, I was so self-centered. And, and shifting from self-centered to other-centered, you know, is what it's all about. And when I got to, and, and I didn't want to sponsor, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I didn't want to do 10, 11, and 12 um, until I got to, to this new recovery, this real recovery, this surrendered recovery. And the conversations that I have with sponsees every day are that we are doing this because our primary purpose is to carry the message to someone suffering. So my recovery, my process with my sponsor, my working the 12 steps, my being in the book and reading it is always about being able to carry the message. And when we start in the, in the doctor's opinion and start reading, I tell them in the beginning, pay attention and take notes because this is all about you being able to carry your unique, beautiful story of recovery. You're not there today, but I guarantee you will be there. And so take notes because you're going to do this and you're going to, you're going to give this message of recovery and hope to someone else. And that's when recovery is going to explode, when we get to carry the message, when we get to get out of ourselves. And so I regularly have those conversations with sponsees. This is not only about you getting your recovery. This is about the true recovery, carrying it forward, giving it to someone else freely just as it was given to me. And so we have to go through our self-centeredness. We have to look at all that. And we don't get to really start changing that until we get to step four and get to take a hard look at ourselves. So we as sponsors, I believe, have to really be gentle and let people go through their processes while always saying, you're going to be carrying this message. You're going to be carrying this beautiful message of recovery. You will be there and encouraging people on the way when they don't think they're going to be there and let them know, do this and you'll be there. So I believe it's all about just encouraging, letting people be where they are, but encouraging them to know that recovery is possible. We just do it by working these steps and reading this book. It's all here. It's not, it's not easy always, but it is simple in the instructions. I don't have to, I don't make anything up. It's right here. I got it. You can get it too. And we can carry the message together. Thanks, Tara. Hope that helped. Thanks, Tara. Appreciate that.
And Stacy Kay, you're next, and uh, we can open it up for a few more after you. Stacy, good morning. Good morning, Melanie. Can you hear me? I can. Hey. Hey, thank you for your service. Marie, thank you so much for your share. I so, uh, so appreciate hearing you. Um, I'm one of the lucky ones that get to hear you face-to-face, too. <laughs> um, anyway, I was thinking kind of along the lines that Tara's um, question was. Um, when I first came into the program, I was desperate to be desperate, um, um, and that's what helped me stay but I, I didn't completely surrender. I still resisted and I still had that figure it outism. You know, I wasn't too smart for the program, but I was trying to always figure it out. So definitely in self. And, um, but I did, you know, I, I did, you know, get it from my head to my heart eventually. <laughs> and so I was wondering about that, about, um, you know, I have some thoughts, but like when you recognize that somebody you're working with is struggling um, to get it from their head to their heart, or they're, you know, they got, you know, they're not out of ideas, or they're, they, they keep thinking that they can wish their self-centeredness away, you know, that sort of thing. If you recognize that, how, how do you, how else do you help them? Well, maybe you have some other thoughts besides what you uh, told Tara. Thanks. Thanks, Stacy, my friend. Um, yeah, I. Uh, I have little assignments that that I implemented during all my first few years, and I pass them on to my sponsees. I really think that because we have an incredibly short memory, our ism, um, that we we forget. You know, we just we just forget, and we don't practice. So for me, I can't emphasize enough with my sponsees: practice, practice, practice. So. How do I get from my head to my heart? My, my ego is constantly, constantly going back and wanting to pull, be in charge and, and all, all during the day. And, and yeah, I'm recovered and I'm in a recovered state and I'm sponsoring, but it doesn't mean that that's not still happening to me all day long. And so the practice that I, that I give to sponsees is first of all, set your iPhone or whatever phone you have, your alarm once an hour. And and every hour, have a God message there. You know, have a message of surrender. I don't care what the messages are, but stop for 30 seconds. Stop for 10 seconds. Stop for one minute or stop for 10 minutes. It doesn't matter. But I had to be reminded. And so I had my alarm. For two years, I had my alarm set. And it would go off. And let me tell you, every hour, that's really annoying. But it got me in the practice of recognizing, oh, I'm in my head, okay, and then just a little word of surrender. And all these kinds of things, how can we remind ourselves all day long to practice this head-to-heart movement? And, um, you know, that's been a really effective one, and I've had sponsees come back. Now, people fall out of it, and then, you know, they come back, calamity strikes, and relapse happens, and then I ask the question, is your alarm still set? Oh, no, I don't do that anymore. You know, it's just rigorous practice. We have to constantly be in that. My first thought has to be surrender this, not my second, not after I'm hacked off at somebody because of something they did or said. 
my first thought has to be, oh, wow, God is talking to me here. Oh, my gosh, what's going on here? Instead of why are they doing this to me and going into self and self-pity, it's just exercising that muscle. And I have to have a reminder every hour to exercise that muscle of surrender, and then it becomes second nature. I don't have my alarm set anymore, but if I ever get stuck with my own pulling my will back, I do go set my alarm for a few days and go, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not, not in the surrender thing. And I remind myself. I hope that helps. Thank you, Stacey Kay. And I'm going to open up the lines, if you don't mind, Marie J., if you have a little more time for a few more people to ask you some questions. Yes, thanks, Melanie. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So who would like to ask Stacy a question? Oh, Stacey, for goodness sakes. Marie J., a question this morning. Gina, Gina R. Hi, Julie Gina. M. Pam Pam. Pam. Anybody else? Carol R. Carol. Mm-hmm. Wendy B. Wendy. Tammy G. Tammy. This is the last call, so who else? Nettie. Last call. Nettie S. Nettie S. Nettie. Gotcha, Nettie. Jen M. Jen M. Garrison M. Garrison. Mora Z. Oh, they're coming out. They're coming out. Very good. Well, that sounds like a fantastic lineup to to um, wrap up this wonderful Sunday special edition. Let me tell you what I have. I have Gina R., Julie M., Pam S., Carol R., Wendy B., Tammy G., Nettie S., Jen M., Garrison M., and Maura Z. Good morning to you again, Gina. You're up first. What's your question? Thanks so, thanks so much, Mel. This is Gina R. in Arizona. And Marie, um, wow. I, and I am so glad I was able to listen, and I feel so uh, privileged that I have the opportunity to know you in person and that I'm part of that cloud of witnesses um, that, that's watched at least the last couple years of your unfolding and what God's doing in you. I've got about 16 questions, but I'm trying to um, <laughs> distill them down. Um, I'm wondering if you could somehow describe how, through your meditation experience, you um, are able to discern the difference between the ego voice and what God is telling you when it's a really hard truth that you have to hear and then if you could somehow relate that to um, working with people when they are trying to um, develop or follow a food plan to get, to get to that abstinence stage so that they can actually begin this process of developing and unfolding. And I hope that's not too unwieldy. And thank you so much. <laughs> Say that last part about the abstinence part. Um, how... I think the concept between compliance and surrender as it relates to abstinence is really interesting, and I'm wondering if you could just speak to that a little more um, for you. Um, you know, the, there are a lot of parts of um, OA in the different 
um, factions, you know, where it, it's very rules-based. And, and I heard you loud and clear that it's like, okay, just give me the rules and I'll do it. But it sounds like some, you know, somewhere something shifted and you didn't focus too much on the food, but obviously we say the food has to be down before you can get any of this. And I see that a lot of people struggle with that. I hope that helps. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for your kind words, too. Um, yeah, the, uh, the food has to be down. So the compliance versus surrender topic on the food, it, it has nothing to do with abstinence. Abstinence has to be down. Abstinence has to be total in order to work the steps. So um, in the beginning, the, the only way that I have seen it work with my sponsees is I have to be committed to a daily call. Because I, I can get about 24 hours and then my head is going crazy and, and I'm all about my ego taking over. And I find that people who struggle with abstinence are just not in it every day. When we're in it new, like I wasn't, I wasn't on the calls every day and I wasn't doing the work every day and I wasn't doing four hours of phone calls and outreach and all the stuff that I'm doing today. I was, you know, coming in and doing a little bit at a time. And so... When, when I sponsor somebody who's brand new and, or somebody who's a chronic relapser, it's every day. I'm committed and they're committed, and otherwise we don't work together because we have to be in the hope and in the message and in, in the conversation every single day because they have to be abstinent in order to work the steps. And so the daily call is really important. The compliance piece on that is I don't try to define um, people's food plan and things like that. Yes, we talk about what are their ingredients. We listen to Ruth's talk. I mean, all of that is very, very important. And I encourage them to get a professional to help them. It took me three years to get a professional to help me and to tell me what I should be eating and how much. And so we talk about what their abstinence is, but they also have to they have to own it. They have to be willing. And if people are constantly falling out of um, abstinence, then we just have to work harder with, you know, I give them assignments. Okay, if once a day calling me is not enough, then you, you need to make some other calls. And here's some people who are recovered people that you can call. And so you're going to talk to me in the morning, and then I want you to call somebody in the afternoon or evening and talk to them about your abstinence. So, you know, just get the support you need so that you can own and be responsible for your abstinence piece so that we can go on and work the steps. And the other question you asked about ego voice versus God voice, um, one thing I know is that when I'm in meditation, and especially if I'm on something really hard, um, I might not get the answer I want when I want it. And that too is a part of my surrender. I realize, God, that, you know, I may not have this answer coming from you. Let me be open and let me hear it when the guidance comes. And until that time, let me practice acceptance. And I know when I am guided by God because I am calm, serene, and peaceful. And I know when it's my ego voice because there is internal struggle and tension. There's discomfort when it's my ego voice. There is peace, serenity, and calm when it's God's voice. And I have to be patient because I may not get the answer when I want it. 
Thanks, Gina. Thank you, Gina. Good morning, Julie M. You're next. Your question. Hi. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Julie M. Recovered in Colorado. Oh, my God, Marie. I, that was awesome. And uh, so great to hear you put to words everything that I've seen you from the beginning. And, oh, my God, I needed to hear everything you said. Um, so I've worked through the steps several times as well as with sponsees. And what would you say to someone who continues to have to struggle with step two? You know, I hear you loud and clear about going back to step two. And the other thing I hear loud and clear is that we need to work quickly and thoroughly through the steps to reach a spiritual awakening. If someone consistently struggles with connecting to a higher power, and I hear the part about meditation, absolutely. Um, but if someone really just is struggling with step two and doesn't get step two on the level that you're talking about, true surrender versus compliance, do you, how long, I mean, do you stay in step two forever? I feel like that wouldn't be, I had to grab on and be just willing to accept that there was something greater than myself and keep moving. I didn't have true surrender. Um, so I don't know if that's a clear enough question. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. It's really clear. Um, yeah, the the level I'm talking about <laughs> took me years to get to. So no, we we don't get there on day one when we're working step two. You know, it's hard work, and we have to keep going back to it. But every day I work step two. You know, every day I am coming to believe greater and greater things about my the the limitless power of my higher power. And as I said. I had this, you know, this punishing male god sitting on a sitting on a throne with a with a lightning bolt pointed at me all the time because I was a bad girl. That was my concept of God for my whole life in a very religiously male dominated world. Boy, getting from that to where I am today is just I mean, just a gigantic miracle. So we we do what we do and we do what we have the capacity to do at the time we have to do it. But that's why we're always in the steps. So we get through the steps and we keep going back and continuing to work all those steps every day. I work all 12 steps every single day. So I, I, get, I, I wake up in the morning and I work steps one, two, and three, and I talk out loud to God as if God is in the room with me, sitting next to me, and I just have a conversation about steps one, two, and three. And I'm doing my inventory during the day, and I'm doing all these other steps during the day, and I'm carrying the message of hope by sponsoring and by being on the line. So we just keep moving forward. We're not going to have it all. And, and I don't have it all now either. I mean, I'm still moving forward, still improving my conscious contact with God, still working on my surrender. And I have an atheist who is a sponsee of mine. And boy, we have gone back and back and back and round and round and round working on her experience of higher power. And it's taken her a year of working on the second step, but we have not stopped. We just keep going back to it. We're working through the other steps. And we are now through her second round of steps. The, and, and we got back again to 
her second step, and there's a deeper experience of higher power, and she's coming around to finding it. So we just have to just be diligent in doing the exercises to be able to, to constantly connect. And really, for me, the answer is sit in quiet meditation and ask for higher power to be revealed to you. Whatever that higher power is, if I'm willing and open to sit quietly and listen and do it with regularity every day, it will come. And if I'm not willing, I'm not going to get there. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, Pam. You're next with your question. Hi there. Good morning. Um, And thank you, Melanie and um, Marie. And this is a very good subject for me. I've been a chronic relapser. Um, I have been told by sponsors that I've worked with, you know, through the big book that, you know, I do hard work, I do all the assignments, you know, I'm on time with my calls, you know, I'm, I'm showing up and I'm doing the do, but then I pick up. And I related to what you said regarding, um, you know, all, I, I get up and I'm an ego, and I'm just going through the motions of, you know, being abstinent. And um, because I'm only on step one, two, or three, um, one time I got as far as step seven or eight, and then the sponsor dropped me like a hot rock, and that was pretty discouraging. And I had not, you know, been in the food. Um, but I've been told that, you know, step 11 is meditation, um, and that all I have to do is basically, you know, step one, you know, do you believe that? Check. Step two, do you believe in a higher power can help you? Check. You know, just sort of going through the motions. And then it's not until step four that, you know, you're really picking up the pen and, you know, searching yourself. And by then it's like, with not a real connection to God, like you said, how do you do that? So, you know, as a person who has not gone through all 12 steps and has been a chronic relapser, and, you know, I hear people say, you're not supposed to interview uh, to get a sponsor, but I know I need to go through very quickly, and I know I need to do something to be connected to God. What do you suggest someone who has no sponsor with my background and my situation, what would you suggest? Um, okay, Pam, thanks for that question. Um, I, I agree with you that step 11 is the meditation step and step 11 was really key for me once I got through two and three, because who do I turn to if I have no belief and trust and surrender? And that's steps two and three. So I, if I'm in step 11 and I, and I haven't adequately completed steps two and three, I have nowhere to turn. I don't, I don't have anywhere to turn because I don't have any belief and I don't have any surrender. And um, so on chronic relapse, my experience with, with sponsees that I've had is that they haven't really um, accepted, you know, step one. So we go back to step one because step one, it guarantees that we'll eat again if we don't accept our powerlessness. 
and move on to two and three. So step one says I'm powerless, I'm going to eat. And if I haven't hit bottom and I don't believe that that's true and move on to the steps, um, then, I, then I'm not going to have recovery. And so I believe for myself, I have to have a sponsor. My sponsor is my lifeline. And I don't talk to her every day and I don't talk to her all the time. Everybody's different in their needs for sponsorship once we hit recovery. And my sponsor and I talk probably once a week, but we're also local and I see her face to face a lot. Um, so I think that the first thing is, for me, if I didn't have a sponsor, I'm done. I'm cooked. I have to have some, she, you know, she's my God squad. She's my, she's my God line. You know, when I, when I'm struggling, she's the one I can call and go, wow, I'm really stuck here, man. I'm stuck. And I, I can't, I can't remember my incredibly short memory has, I've forgotten all of recovery. Tell me what I need to do. So I think that having a sponsor is really key. And I think getting through all the steps, pushing forward um, for chronic relapsers, I meet with them every day because there's, there, there's just a need to have that constant reminder, 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 and, and initially it needs to be from me. But my reminder is to get with God, get with God. You know, I'm not in charge, but I'm here to be the voice of God until you can hear the voice of God yourself. And so that would be my um, recommendation is work the steps fast and furiously with a sponsor and do it every day. Thanks, Thank Pam. you. Thank you, Pam S. Good morning, Carol R. You're next. What's your question for Marie? Hi, everybody. Good morning. Um, thank you so much, um, Marie. Um, your story was just amazing and so filled with hope. Um, so in the beginning, you were talking about, you were actually describing me, striving for attention, living in perfectionism, the imposter syndrome, loneliness, dated all alcoholics, no true intimacy. So I guess my question would be, like, where are you with that now? Um, I know it sounds like you're way far on the other side, but I'm just wondering, like, intimacy with relationships in regards to your husband and your friends, you know, that takes a lot of work, and it, it's like, it's a it's a continuum. It's a process, and um, I sh I still struggle with intimacy um, and deep relationships, fear, and especially around my husband. So I just wondered, like, where you are in all that, as now that you're like way on the other side. So thanks. Thanks, Carol. Well, I have that famous uh, slogan: I can't save my face and my ass at the same time. Um, I, I got connected and intimate with my husband after my second relapse or my first relapse when I finally worked my ninth step and did my amends to him. When I finally was able to really get clear on how I operated our entire relationship, how I wanted to fix, manage, and control and change him and how I blamed him and it was in all the self-words, selfishness, self-righteousness, self-pity, you know, he was responsible for keeping me happy and he wasn't doing a good job of it. And it wasn't until I could suck it up and let God let me see that I was doing that, go through my four, five, six, seven, eight, 
and get to a ninth step and be able to do my amend with him. And when I was able to do that, and I wrote it out very specifically, and in many, many pages, and I did not leave anything out, and I read it to him because I didn't want to leave anything out. And in that moment, there was transformation for both of us because I finally owned it. I finally took responsibility. And I finally had, I had some remorse for how I had treated him. And, and then the other thing that has happened is I, I had expectations of him to create the intimacy, to create the connection, to be vulnerable with me so I could be vulnerable with him. But I wasn't safe. I wasn't safe. He couldn't, he couldn't expose his real self to me because I was in judgment about him. And I had to realize that. And so when I realized that, I became safe. I asked God and I prayed and I meditated and I paused when irritated or agitated and doubtful. I paused and I didn't open my mouth and I ran into the other room and I wrote a 10 step and I called somebody on the phone and said, oh my gosh, I'm about to say something to my husband. And I did that for months and months and kept my trap shut. And then I became safe. And when he opened up to me, the little little, little dip his toe in to open up and see if I was safe. I had to be safe. I had to constantly be asking God to keep me safe in his presence, presence and, and, and be a person come from how God sees him and not go to my standard, uh, you know, character defects. I hope that helps, Carol. That helps. Tremendously. Thank you so much. Thank you. I need to get your number. <laughs> We're going to get that for you here, too, at the conclusion of the meeting. So hang tight, Carol. Have pen and paper ready. Nice question. Wendy B., you're next. Good morning. What's your question? Wendy B., star one, please. This is Wendy B. Sorry, I thought I was unmuted before. And um, I, too, could really relate to your description of your early marriage and your um, constantly trying to change your husband and he wasn't what you wanted or doing what you wanted. And I believe you just answered my question because you had referred to um, divorce earlier and it seems like now you're talking like you never went through with that. And, um, and that was my question. So thank you. Thanks, Wendy. No, I'm very happily married. Thank you. <laughs> By the grace of God. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. This is, this is Tammy G. from Texas. Is it my turn? I think it is. I don't hear Mel, but I, I, I think either. it is your well, turn. Yeah. I'm sure she'll come back. <laughs> I am back. I was muted. Thanks. So oh, much. There's yes, please. <laughs> sorry for the sorry for the confusion between the two of you. Hi, Tammy. Go ahead with your. That's question. okay. Thanks, That's okay. Mel. Yeah. Uh -huh. My name is Tammy G, and I'm from Texas, and I'm very nervous to do this. This is my very first time to call um, on a vision and you know be live or whatever. But anyway, I um, am really 
pretty desperate right now. I am, um, I've been listening to Vision for a couple of years, and um, I've had a couple of sponsors, and the first sponsor, she uh, turned back to the food, and so she told me she couldn't sponsor anymore. And the second sponsor, um, after working with her for about six months, and decided that it just wasn't working out between us. And so she, um, you know, just said I needed to find another sponsor. So anyway, I'm pretty desperate to find a sponsor in Vision. I want a recovered sponsor. I go to two OA meetings a week, you know, in my area um, and don't see a lot of recovery. The kind of recovery that I see, that I hear on the special editions, you know, I've I've listened to KDG, I think it's Kim G, your story. You know, I can really relate to it. And I'm really desperate to find recovery. Um, I have about four years with no sugar and no white flour. But what I can't seem to put down is extra food. Um, You know, and I, I lost 65 pounds, you know, had some great recovery for a couple of years. But I don't know, since I lost my sponsor, and I can't seem to find another sponsor. I think I'm using it as an excuse to kind of stay in the food because that's my disease. That's where I want to, you know, I want to stay in the food. Um, but right now I'm, I'm miserable. I gained about 20 pounds back, and I'm starting to have that just hopelessness again. And just um, I, I can tell I'm, you know, out of control. And my question, I guess, is, do you have any advice in finding a, you know, it says in the big book, find some, or not in the big book, but it says find someone that has something that you want and, you know, get their strength, hope, and experience to them. And so what I'm doing is, in a vision, is kind of randomly picking someone. Well, you know, I don't know them. They don't know me. So what I'm needing is um, advice on how to find a sponsor um, and to work these steps, like you said, to work them fast, because every sponsor I've ever had, it's like we read from the big book, we talk for maybe, you know, 45 minutes a day, or 45 minutes uh, one time a week, and read from the big book, and it just seems like it's taken forever. I've, I've worked the steps. Um, I think, you know, I liked what you said in your, your talk about go back and find what you missed, working through the steps, because I'm still in relapse. So there's something I missed. So what is your advice on me finding a sponsor through a vision? Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Um, You're in the right place, you know. We can all go through that hopelessness. So you're in the right place. And there is a sponsor for you, and it doesn't have to be the exact right one and perfect one. But I do feel like... um, when when people go through relapse, I think you have to be, and, and this is my personal experience with my sponsees, so everything is different. I can't say exactly what is perfect for you, but um, the first on the, the issue of volume, I had that issue for a long time, and I was unwilling to get a professional to tell me how to eat because I didn't want to let go of the control of my food. So I would just suggest that maybe you look at that or talk to other people who are recovered, make some outreach calls, and and ask them how they got a hold of the uh, volume issue. And I would be happy to talk to you about that offline too. but getting a sponsor, you know, there's there's several meetings, and at the end of every meeting, there is, a, you know, a, a 
a call for people who need sponsors and a call for sponsors that are available. And what I do with people is when they call and say, hey, can you sponsor me? I say, how about if we go through the doctor's opinion and we talk and we maybe I'll help you get your, talk about your abstinence and talk about your red list and, you know, talk about your abstinent behaviors and, and we just talk. And, and how about if we have four conversations and we see if it feels like it's a match and it's going to fit. And so instead of committing, you know, I just work with somebody for a little bit and we continue to talk about it and then we continue to move on or not. But I think there's also some willingness that needs to come from the sponsee. If we trust and have faith that God is going to be the driver, then you put yourself out there and the person that you're given, as long as you are able to be in it every day and not just once a week, I don't think a chronic relapser can be in it once a week and, and maintain, um, maintain abstinence very easily. So if, if you're not, you know, find somebody who's willing to work with you once a day or at least, you know, a few times a week and then fill in so that you're having conversations with somebody every day. So that's what I would suggest. And you could have a list, you could have a God squad and, and pick people who are talking on the lines that you connect with and get their phone numbers and then call one of them each every day. You can call them and say, would you work with me once a week on this topic? Or would you work with me twice a week and then have two people, not necessarily two sponsors, but just some way for you to be in it every day. I think that's what's key. Thanks, Tammy. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Nettie S., you're next with your question. Hi. Um, hi, thank you for your service. And um, you pretty much hit on what I was asking, uh, what I, my question. Um, I just seem like sometimes the people that are closest to me seem to be testing me or pushing my buttons to see when I'm going to go off on them. And because I'm so young in this uh, vision for you recovery, um, I have not been able to pause when agitated. And um, so you did answer that, but if you can elaborate some more on it, that's fine. If not, I'm okay with that too. I'll get your number at the end. Thank you. Thanks, Nettie. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think too much can be said on this topic because I, it took a long time before I was a safe place for my husband to talk. And the way we are now is pretty, is pretty much miraculous. I mean, it really is because, but I, boy, I had to keep my trap shut. It was almost as though when he'd say something, I have to put my hand over my mouth and run out of the room. That's how it felt. It didn't actually happen that way all the time, but I needed to always pause. I have a little wristband that I got, uh, I ordered, um, you know, one of those rubber wristbands like live strong. And it says, we pause when agitated or doubtful. And I wore that for a while. Anything that could remind me to keep my trap shut when my husband did something that I didn't, that I found objectionable. And the other thing is, is I had to be fully convinced that it was me, not him. And that is a, that is a decision that I make in my mind. That's a choice that I make. Even though he's triggering me, I have to stop and say, wait, this is me. This is me. I'm not accepting. I'm, I'm in my self-righteousness. You know, I have a, I have a six-step process that, that we go through of um, 
of creating a list of my character de defects, which are my go-to reactions. That's my reactivity. And I went through this exercise of, you know, and I've got this list and I've got some other things on it and I make a bookmark out of it. And that's what I do with my sponsees. And when I get stuck, I have, I have uh, four laminated copies of this bookmark and I have it in, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in my house. I've got one in this book and I've got one in my big book. I've got one in my calendar. And when I get stuck or I feel reactive, I can grab that and go, okay, what am I acting out on here? Oh, self-righteousness. You know, that's at the top of the list. Oh, perfection. He's not doing it my way. You know, I can grab a hold and say, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Pause when agitated or doubtful, look for my character defect, and then go do a 10th step. So it really requires quick thinking and a quick willingness to surrender this to God and say, okay, I know, I know I think it's him. I know I think it's him, but it's not, it's me. I am in some self-serving, self-centered mindset that needs to be changed. God, change me at depth. I am willing to be changed. And I have to do these things. And sometimes I have to walk in the bathroom and close the door and say them out loud. So it's that, it's that much my hair on fire. That's how I work it. Thanks, Nettie. Thank you, Nettie. Jen M., your question, please, for Marie. Hi, this is Jen M., a compulsive reader from Iowa. And one of my questions was, I was curious um, where we can find some of the literature that you talked about from Dr. Tebow, because it seemed like that was something that really helped you a lot. Great. Yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, there is a uh, silkworth.net. Okay. So that's where you can find it. Um, Tebow is spelled, first I Googled, and you can just Google Tebow, Harry Tebow. It's T-I-E-B-O-U-T. And um, say that again? I said, oh, I had that totally wrong. So I'm glad you Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, so if you go to silkworth.net, the papers are actually on. Uh, there's uh, five papers, I think, that are actually on silkworth.net. And you can also find on, um, oh, I don't remember the, you know, you can call me offline if you want, and I can tell you the, the, other, the other place that I heard some talks about it. And there are some talks, Harry Tebow giving his own talk about his papers. Those are available too. Okay, and then the other question was just, when do you feel it's okay to start becoming a sponsor? Like, do you feel like a person has to be completely through all of the steps themselves or, you know, does it help a person who's maybe not even through the steps yet um, to start sponsoring just because like you said, it helps you just as much as it helps them sometimes. Yeah. My feeling is um, we need to take the time to do our steps. We need to be selfish and get everything we can to make sure that we get full recovery and we can carry the message. So, I feel like you have to, you know, you have to get to step 12. We carry the message when we're at step 12. In the meantime, having fellowship calls and having a God squad and having somebody to go to, ten, you know, there's 10-step trains. There's all kinds of 
things that are available to stay in fellowship and to have conversations with people about recovery, but the actual act of sponsorship, I think, is reserved for step 12, and that's because we need to get there. We need to feel fully ready and ready and excited and looking forward to carrying the message, and it, it takes a while. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jen. And Garrison, you're next. Thank you so much. This is Garrison um, in uh, Maryland <clears throat> recovering. Hi. Thank you so much, Marie. Um, okay. I really um, needed to hear about, um, well, you've got your son, or I, I don't know if they're two boys. Anyway, I have a 12-year-old son who, um, uh, and I'm at step nine, <clears throat> and I am... Um, Think, trying to figure out like how these amends are going to work with him. I've talked with my sponsor about kind of what I'm going to say to him, but I get I find myself frustrated with him a lot um, because of how he spends his time. So like he's always on the computer screen. He's always um, doing that, and um, you know, and I've like badgered him, lectured him, complained to him. And one of my harms to him is that I haven't spent as much time with him as I could have, um, and I haven't been a good role model in terms of, like, eating right and exercising. And I've put pressure on him, I guess, to be much more grown up than he is. And, um, you know, I, like, I want him to have his whole act together and, like, do his hobby of music, um, you know, get in touch with friends, hang out with friends, and not just do this one thing of being on his devices. And so it's hard for me. I don't know how to like, I know how to say to him, I haven't spent enough time with you. Um, and, you know, I haven't been a great role model. But I don't know how to then carry that out without him being like, you're forcing this, you know, don't make me go do things with you. Don't make me, you know, like it just feels like a battle when I try to like pull him away from what he's doing to like spend time with me. Um, he really gets grumpy, and he doesn't want to be with me. So that's my question. I don't know how to make amends with my son. <laughs> that's my problem. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. Um, I, I, so, boy, I get that. I get that. Yes, I have twin boys, and yes, they spend a lot of time on their devices. And my husband is also very technology-oriented, mm -hmm. and so he's raising our children, and he's the stay at home dad and I don't agree with how he's raising them. So I, I get mm -hmm. that. And it's, um, and I want to spend more time with my kids and at first forcing it wasn't going to work. See, I wasn't safe. I wasn't a fun place to be for my kids. So why would they want to be with me? And so I had to nurture and become that fun place. And it was, little tiny things at first. And it was really focusing on what do they want? You know, like taking my kids out to the to coffee shop and, and letting them have a hot chocolate. And, okay, let's go do that. You know, that was something that, you know, and it was a half an hour and that was it. And so finding ways for me to be safe and spend time with them doing what they want to do. And sometimes it was, I had to go down in the basement and get on the the big machine and do the Star Wars shoot 'em up thing, whatever, and learn how to use the little handle control thing. I mean, I don't know how to do any of that stuff, but 
that's what they like. That's what their life is about. And now all of a sudden, mom's pretty fun because I'm on there and they're laughing at me because I can't shoot anything. And I can't, and I, you know, my, the score is 157, Adam, zero, mom. Okay, that's really fun. And so making amends um, to my children. Now, my children are younger, so they didn't understand as much, but I'm able to say, um, I, kids understand a lot and I'm able to own it and say, wow, I'm really trying to recover here. And I realize that sometimes I yell and scream and, and I don't want to be that person. And I want to be engaged in this relationship. And I'm sorry for the harms I've done. And, and they'll probably happen again. And I'm probably going to yell at you again in our lives, but I'm going to work really hard to, to pay attention and to pause before I let myself go off. You know, that, that's enough for a kid. They don't need a ton they just need to know that you care and that you see what you're doing and um, spending time with what they want to do. So maybe spending time learning about your kid's technology. You know, I had to learn how to play Minecraft and get on my computer and I want to do all that stuff. But boy, the relationship I have with my kids today is different because even if I do it for 10 minutes, once a week, they, are, they see it, they feel it, they know I'm engaged. I hope that helped. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. Melanie, we can't hear you. Hi, thanks for that reminder. And our last question today will be Maura Z. That will be the end of our questions today. Good morning, Maura. Good morning, Melanie Z. Thank you so much for your service. And um, I just went completely blank. Is it Anne Marie? I hope I have your name correct. Marie, I, my apologies. No problem. Um, so um, just real quick, I feel like I've been found out listening to you. But I also <laughs> feel very, well, I feel very freed. I feel very freed because... The comparison between compliance and surrender was like a completely new theory brought onto the planet. Just completely new for me. And you explained it so clearly and so succinctly. Um, Here's my question. Um, I'm feeling a need to redo my steps or to do them again, not to redo them, but to do them again. And um, to feel I I want to get to where that place of surrender is. And so from time to time, I'm feeling resentful at having a sponsee. And I get on the phone and we have a great conversation and I'm like, oh, thank you, God, because this is what I need to be doing. I need to be sponsoring. I need to be in the big book. But my question is, for your personal opinion, do you suggest I let go of my sponsees and focus totally on me doing my 12 steps? in order to really come to a place of surrender or my gut says, no, you keep working your 12 steps, you keep doing your sponsees. But I would just like your feedback on that if you have any. Thanks, Maura. Well, I believe your gut is your God. You know, I believe we listen to what feels right. You know, when I'm surrendered to God and asking for direction, then there's no inner tension and struggle. There's only peace, serenity, and, and, and surety. And so 
um, I am always working my steps. And so I'm not like going through my steps from beginning to end all the time. I'm just always in them and, and recognizing, oh, this is up. Wow, I need to really sit down and do a six and a seven here. And then I'll do that and I'll call my sponsor. Um, so I, I also believe that I do my best work on myself when I'm sponsoring because, boy, is it easy to get resentful of a sponsee when they're not doing it my way. You want what I got? You got to do what I got? I did, you know. That is just so self-centered and so self-serving. You know, they have their path, and I am here to only share my experience, strength, and hope and get them through the book and give them some assignments that will hopefully, hope, hopefully help them springboard into some transformation. But I, I can't affect it. And so things come up in sponsorship. So if you feel that you are recovered and you're just going back and working the steps deeper and deeper and peeling back layers, then there's no reason not to sponsor. But if you feel like you are missing something and you're not effective as a sponsor and you can't carry a message and and give that experience, strength, and hope, then maybe you need to start over and only you and God can make that that determination, you know. Um, But if your gut says, no, I need to keep this, my experience is I'm working the steps all the time. Yes, my sponsors are triggering me, and they are triggering me to look at me, not to teach them something or how to be different or change or you need to do this or that. That's not right. my job. My job is to look at my trigger and make my change with God, and sponsorship really keeps me on my toes for my recovery. Thank you, Marie. That's that's perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mara. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mara Z. Thank you. And that concludes this, this portion. Thanks so much, Marie, for sharing so much of yourself, even with this additional time for answering these questions. We had over 17 people asking questions, and I know it took you a little bit over your time. So I appreciate Thanks so that much, willingness. Mara. Yeah, for hanging in there with us. Appreciate that. And we're going to offer Marie's contact information at the conclusion of this meeting. So uh, stand by for that, would you please? And then the share ID for today, the Sunday, December 31st, 2017 special edition, the very last one for this year, is 10858, 10858. So I'm going to close this meeting the way we always close this meeting here at A Vision for You, and that's by reading page 164 in the big book. So hang with me while we do this together. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you 